Good evening. Well, it is a wonderful privilege to be able to share God's word with you this evening. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. This evening, we're going to be looking in chapter 22 of Matthew, and this is the parable of the wedding feast. Over the last couple of years, our community group has been studying the various parables of Jesus. And out of all of the parables that we've examined, the one that I like the most is this parable of the wedding feast. It is a dramatic story. It is a story that is full of action. And it is a story that contains an important lesson for us. It is a story about a wedding reception. Wedding receptions are always a fun time, aren't they? They're a time when we can get together with the bride and groom, when we can spend time with our family and close friends and have a bite to eat, and then to say farewell to the bride and groom as they begin their lives together. I'd imagine that almost all of us in this room have been to a wedding reception at some point in our lives, but I can guarantee you that none of you have ever attended a wedding reception quite like this one. It is, in fact, one of the strangest, most unusual stories of a wedding. And I think our Lord is pointing us toward the invitation of the gospel and what awaits if we don't accept his call to believe. Well, let's look at his word together, beginning in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of God. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call all of those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat cows have been slaughtered. And everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, and they went off. One went to his farm, another went to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads. And invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads, and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Amen. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity this evening to read your word. And we pray that you, by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, would impress the truth of your word upon our hearts and our minds, that we may not only be hearers of your word, but that we may be doers of your word. 
This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is a shocking parable, isn't it? Maybe as we read it, you may have missed some of the irony. A king sends his invitations out to a wedding feast, and not a single person shows up. In fact, some of the people who were invited to the wedding feast actually mistreated the servants and even killed them. And on the very same day of his son's wedding, the king commissions his armies and sets fire to an entire city. Our Lord is clearly setting before us the wickedness of these guests. It is a story that was told by our Lord to indict the Jews for their failure to accept the offer of salvation. But it's also a story for you and I. Well, as we look at this parable together, I think we can easily divide the parable into three main sections. First, in verses 1 through 7, we'll see that the invitation goes out and is rejected. Second, in verses 8 through 10, we see the filled wedding hall. And then finally, in verses 11 through 14, we see the man with the missing wedding wardrobe. The rejected invitations, the filled wedding hall, and the missing wedding garment. Well, before we look into this parable, I wanted to provide some brief context of where we are. In Matthew 22, we are in the final week of our Lord, known as Holy Week. And in chapter 21, the previous chapter, he's entered into Jerusalem, and he's in the temple teaching. And we're told in verse 23 that the chief priests and the elders came up to him. They have been questioning his authority all along. And in verse 23, they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? By what permission do you have to speak? Show us your credentials, they said. And so he's going to respond to them with three parables that expose their hypocrisy. First, he's going to give them the parable of the two sons. Secondly, the parable of the tenant farmers. And then finally, the parable that we're looking at this evening. And in all three of these stories, our Lord is pronouncing judgment upon the nation of Israel. They've witnessed his teaching. They've seen his miracles. They know he speaks as one who has authority, but yet they are indignant. They refuse to acknowledge him as the Messiah. And so Jesus is going to pronounce judgment upon them. This really shouldn't come as a surprise to us because, or to them because Jesus just told them in the previous parable in verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and it will be given to a people who are producing its fruits. And now he's going to give us an illustration of this. Well, in the parable of the wedding feast, we see that some are indifferent towards the invitation. Others are downright hostile to the invitation. But as we'll soon see, indifference towards Christ and opposition towards Christ are really both forms of rejecting him. There is no neutral ground. Either we are for him or we are against him. Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, whoever is not with me is against me. So let's take a look here at the parable beginning in verse 1. In verse 1, we're told that Jesus spoke to them again in parables. And oftentimes when Jesus spoke in parables, he would borrow an illustration that was already familiar with his audience. In this case, the illustration was a, a wedding feast, something that undoubtedly everyone was familiar with. And we're told that this was not just any ordinary wedding feast, but that it was a royal wedding feast. It is a celebration that was given by a king to his beloved son. It is the greatest celebration imaginable. 
It is the feast to end all feasts. It is the talk of the town. Some of you may have watched footage from the British royal wedding a couple of years back, and you've seen the pageantry associated with that wedding, and you've seen the elegance associated with it. Well, in verse 3, he's going to send his servants to call all of those people who were invited to this wedding feast. Now, you can imagine the kind of people that would be invited to a wedding feast like this. These were not simply ordinary citizens of the town. But this would have been a rather esteemed multitude of people, some of the most respectable people in town, some of the biggest supporters of the king. And his servants are going to be dispatched to remind these people of the event. It was not unusual in ancient days for an event notice to go out, seeking a yes or no response, can you be there or can you not, and then to follow up later with uh, a reminder of the date and time. It's kind of like a keep the date card that we would send today for a wedding. And so that's what's happening in verses 1 through 3. The servants are dispatched to remind those people who were already invited to come. And shockingly, in verse 3, we're told, but they would not come. Surprisingly, everyone turns down the invitation. Now, can you imagine this? Who in their right minds would turn down an invitation with the king? This was unthinkable. To turn down the king was an outrageous display of rudeness. We have to understand that when a king sends an invitation out, it's not really an invitation that you can turn down. Uh, During my time in the Air Force, Stephanie and I were oftentimes invited to join our squadron in various social gatherings. And on one particular occasion, we were invited to join uh, the three-star general's uh, departing dinner. And it was the talk of the military base. And the general sent out the invitations to those who would come. And being in uh, the general squadron, we got the invitation. And it was an invitation, but it was not really an invitation. You were expected to be there. In fact, to not be there was taken as an insult. You didn't get to choose whether or not you wanted to come. And yet, that's what these guests do. They decide that they're not going to come. So what does the king do? Well, look, look, look with me to uh, verse 4. He's going to send more servants to remind them again. And notice what he does this time. He's going to describe the menu to them. In verse 4, he says, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. It's almost kind of humorous in a way, saying, well, if you didn't want to come the first time, I'm going to tell you about the menu with the hopes that you'll eventually come the next time. And I think we do this sometimes, don't we? I was running a college ministry once um, where I graduated from, and we we were doing a Bible study on the campus. And oftentimes, to encourage college students to come out for our Bible study, we would advertise that there was going to be free food. And the times that we had uh, free food, we noticed that our attendance was much higher. And so in a sense what we're saying is that, hey, we we know you don't want to be here, but we're going to offer free food, so at least please come and join us. And I think we can even learn something here with the food that he serves. Notice that this was not just any ordinary food, but we're told that it was the very best food. When Jesus turned the water into wine, it was not just any ordinary wine, but it was the choicest of wines. It was the very best. And I think what we can see here is a picture of our Lord's superabundant grace. 
It is not just grace that meets our sin, but it is grace that exceeds our sin. It is grace that is greater than our sin. And so our Lord knows how to give us the very best gifts. I think this is also true with salvation. Salvation is not just a means of avoiding hell and coming into heaven, but it is a lifetime of blessings. It is grace upon grace. It is a true sense of love that we can have towards one another another that the world knows nothing about. It is a a deep-rooted gospel joy that we have that is independent upon any uh, circumstances in our life. And it is a peace that surpasses all understanding. Our Lord has given us so many blessings. And so he serves the fatted calf. Well, surely this will convince them to come, right? Verse 5. But they paid no attention and they went off one to his farm, and another to his business. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine getting invited to the White House or getting invited to the Texas governor mansion and receiving an invitation and then telling them no because you had to go do some work in the yard? Well, that's kind of in a sense what he's doing here. Uh, They're they're turning it down because they had to go attend to the business of the day. I like what Calvin says here. Calvin says, one went to his field and another to his merchandise. By these words, Christ pronounces the Jews were so entirely devoted to the world that no man found leisure to approach God. And so they found more pleasure in what the earth would provide. And so I ask you this evening, are you taking more pleasure in earthly pursuits? Are we preoccupied with the stuff of this world, with our bank accounts, our 401ks, where we're living, what we're driving, what we're wearing. Our Lord is bidding us to come to his wedding feast. He has made an abundant provision in his grace. Well, the story starts to make an unusual twist beginning in verse 6. Some of these people actually take the king's servants and they mistreat them and they kill them. And if that's not enough, the story takes an even stranger turn. The king is outraged. And on the very same day of his son's wedding, He dispatches his armies and he burns the entire city to the ground. Imagine an entire city being burned to the ground. I remember a couple of years ago hearing the story about uh, the town of Paradise, California. And it was recorded in California as the most destructive wildfire in the state history. Every single structure in that town was completely burned to the ground. And there was a PCA church there called Ridge Presbyterian. And every member of that church lost their homes in that fire. It's a total loss. Well, this is a dramatic story that we have in the first seven verses, isn't it? What is our Lord trying to teach us? Well, we, were, we are uh, introduced to a king, and we would acknowledge this king as our heavenly father. This king has a son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the, the father is going to honor him by having a wedding feast. And so he's going to call all of his messengers to summons his people to come to the wedding feast. And throughout church history, a lot of people have tried to assign meaning to each of these different sets of messengers. Some people will say, well, the first set of messengers are representative of the Old Testament prophets, and the second set of messengers are like John the Baptist and Jesus. But I don't think that we should look for meaning behind every element of the story. This is, after all, a parable and not an allegory. Nevertheless, I think there are some things that we can learn about the character of God in these opening verses. 
First, we see his extravagant love. We see his patience. He's trying time and time again to draw people into the wedding feast. And so we see a picture of his love. But I think we also see the sinfulness of the people. These people are not simply being rude, but they are actively engaged in sin. They are engaging in rebellion. They are opposed to God. And so Jesus is showing us the wickedness of those who refuse his invitation. Then I think the final thing we can see is the justice of God. We see his justice. These people are not interested. They kill the messengers. And God demonstrates his patience with them up to a certain point. But his patience is not unlimited. And so when he burns this entire city to the ground, this is not an arbitrary act on the part of God. It's not a capricious act on his part, but is an act of judgment against those who have rebelled against, uh, against him. So what does this say about us? Well, this applies not only to the nation of Israel, but it applies to you and I. I like what Dr. Ligon Duncan says. Uh, Dr. Duncan says that the gospel is an offer that we cannot refuse without dire consequences. An entire city being burned to the ground is trivial in comparison to the final judgment that awaits those who reject the gospel. And so I ask you this evening, is Jesus making a difference in your life? Or are you largely indifferent towards him? In what ways is Jesus framing how you understand what's been happening in the world? How have you seen his providence over the past week? In what ways have you personally understood his love, leaned into his wisdom, or seen his power? Well, we've seen that the invitations have gone out and are rejected. But our Lord will by no means leave the banquet table empty. So look with me now to verse 8 as we consider the second part of our outline. And this is the filled wedding hall. Verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Well, if the rejected invitations of the gospel represent the nation of Israel, then what does the filled wedding hall represent? I think we see here a clear picture of the call to the Gentiles. The Gospel of Matthew shows us that the message of salvation is to the Jew first, but then also to the Greek. The message of the Gospel is not just something for ethnic Israel. It is to the Jews to whom the covenant promises were given, but it's also to the Gentiles. And notice the irony here. It is those who should be ready for the kingdom that find themselves not prepared. So the Lord calls upon those who received no invitation to join in his wedding feast, those who were outside of God's covenant with Israel. And so we see a picture of the Gentiles being grafted in. We were just reading from Romans chapter 11, and later in that chapter, Paul gives us a description of the olive tree. And just as the natural branches were not spared, just as they were broken off, and so the wild olive shoots were grafted in, and so it is with the Gentiles. The unbelieving Jews were cut off so that the Jews so that the Gentiles could share the covenant promises and blessings of God. So what does this mean to us? Well, you are here this evening because you, by his grace, have been grafted into his tree. And you get to share in God's covenant promises and blessings. You are a child of Abraham by faith, and so you have been grafted in. 
Well, in verses 8 through 10, the king sends his invitation out to the highways and byways. And notice the instructions here. The instructions are to gather anyone who happens to be standing there. Verse 9, invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And so we see an amazing picture here of God's grace. These people are not people of any rank or importance. These are poor people. These are destitute people. These are people who are undeserving of sitting at the king's table. And yet, the king gives them a place at the table. Isn't that a wonderful picture of the Lord's grace? In 1728, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called The Spiritual Blessings of the Gospel Represented by a Feast. And he said in there that God did not make his feast for those who were excellent and worthy to be invited to the feast, but those who were filthy, defiled, clothed in rags, those who are wandering in the highways and dwelling under the hedges. He sends forth his messengers and he calls them to his house. He washes them from their filthiness and he gives them robes as king's children. What a beautiful picture of what our Lord has done for us. Well, I think in this section, we also see the father's determination to honor the son. He will by no means leave the banquet table empty. He will have the nations streaming into that banquet table. And if it's not going to be with the Jews, then it'll be with someone else. Because he loves the son so much, he wants the son to be honored. And so it is with us. When we go out into Katy or go out into Houston or when we go out into the four corners of the earth to share the gospel with one another or when we support missionaries who share the gospel, it is for the honor of the son. It is, what, it is that we want the son to be magnified and honored and worshipped and glorified. Make no mistake that God will bring all people to himself, but he is pleased to use us as a means for doing that. Well, we've seen that the invitations have gone out and are rejected. Now the wedding hall is filled. This brings us to the third and final point of our outline, and that is the missing wedding wardrobe. In verses 11 through 14, we see God's judgment against the false profession of faith. The wedding hall is filled, and many have been drawn in to the marriage feast. But not everyone who is at the feast has truly embraced God. Verse 11 But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Well, what's happening here? Well, when the servants were set out to invite those who were on the street corners, the ceremony now is within hours of starting. And these people would not have had time to go home and change out of their clothes. These are, after all, daily workers. And moreover, they wouldn't have even had the means of um, having a, a garment that was suitable for the king's presence. And so it was not uncommon in this day for the king himself to supply the wedding garment. And this isn't terribly unusual in our day, is it? If you've ever arrived to a fancy restaurant before and you unfortunately came un- underdressed, uh, it would not be uncommon for the maitre d' himself to supply you with a tie. And so when the king walks into this wedding hall and he sees this man that doesn't have the wedding garment, it's not because he didn't have the time or the money. We're told that he was without excuse. Well, what does this wedding garment symbolize? This has been the subject of a lot of debate over the years. And St. Augustine said that the garment was love that was missing. Uh, Spurgeon said that it was a mark of grace. 
Calvin said that the garment was the new life that we have in Christ. And I think any of these may be true. But what we know for a fact is that whatever it was, it was significant enough to keep the man from enjoying the feast. Otherwise, you can imagine the king coming up to the man and saying, well, shame on you for wearing the wrong wedding garment. But here, take this, go in that room and change, and come back here and sit in my feast. But that's not what happened. We're reminded of the words of Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the king here is saying, look, you may have been called in at the last minute to come to my wedding hall, and you have, may have made your way through my attendance at the front door, and now you're here in this room, and you're, you're at my feast, and you're enjoying my food. But he says, I don't know who you are. And this feast, uh, I think, is a picture of the visible church of Christ. It consists of all of those who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Typically, to join a church, like when you would join our church, you would meet with the elders and you would give us a profession of your faith. But not all who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus actually contain or possess the substance that it contains. And so when Jesus asks him, how did you get in here? What was the man's response? I didn't have time. I didn't know I needed it. Verse 12. And he was completely speechless. He didn't have any response. And so it will be for any of those of us who come to the judgment seat of God without the covering of Christ. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it is appointed for man to die once, and then after that to face judgment. And on that day of judgment, the Lord tells us that we will have to give an account of not just every intentional word or every well-meant word, but of every idle word, every careless word, every word that was mentioned in passing. And what will be our response then when every sin that we've ever committed is laid in the open? What are we going to say to a completely holy God? Well, the truth is we cannot stand before God without the covering of another. The good news of the gospel is, is that, that for those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has responded for us. His life of perfect obedience has been imputed to our accounts. Our sins have been forgiven, and we are considered as completely righteous before the Lord. But what about those who face the tribunal of God without the covering of Christ's righteousness? Well, I think we see a picture of that in verse 13. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This parable is pointing us to another wedding feast. And this will truly be the feast to end all feasts. It is the great marriage supper of the Lamb. It is that day when the Lord Jesus Christ will be reunited with his bride, the church. And all of God's people who have accepted his invitation will dine with him. There will be no outcasts. There will be no wedding crashers. There will be only those who possess faith in the Lord. 
So as we prepare to close this evening, let me ask you, have you accepted the outward calling of the gospel? Are you resting in Jesus Christ alone? Or are you trusting in your own efforts? Isaiah warns us that even our best deeds are like filthy rags. Well, Jesus ends the parable in verse 14 by saying, For many are called, but few are chosen. And I think to understand this closing phrase is to understand the whole parable. The Jews were called, but they refused his invitation. And Jesus is teaching us here that for any of us who refuse him, we are culpable for refusing it. We are responsible for refusing it. But our Lord also shows us another way that we can refuse the gospel. And this is a more subtle way. We can refuse the gospel by accepting it outwardly, but not inwardly through faith. This man with the missing wedding garment presumably accepted the outward call of the gospel. But he paid mere lip service to it. He was a pretend friend of Jesus. And so Jesus is warning us here against the false professions of faith. Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 15, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God will call all of his people to himself. Not a single person will be missing. And so I have some good news and bad news for you as we close. The bad news is, is that we don't have the power to change our wicked, rebellious, sinful hearts. We cannot change our hearts. Only God can do that. But the good news of the gospel is that God is pleased to change our hearts through the power of his spirit. If we have accepted his call, it is only because he was first at work within us to turn us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And only in Christ do we have an everlasting foundation. Well, as we close tonight, I think we can take away three things from this parable. First, don't be indifferent toward the call of God. Second, consider the grace of our Lord. And finally, rest on his finished work for us. Believe in the Lord Jesus today. Let's pray.